1: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a hard fact of life that life can be hard. That might sound like bad news, but the good news is that therapy works and BetterHelp can help you find a therapist to do what you need to do to stay on track. Therapy is whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and like some tools to help, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work. Whatever you need, BetterHelp can help. I use therapy from time to time to help me sort through challenges, emotions, or just to ensure that I'm on track for the things that are important. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about, and special offer to Man God Law listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com slash man MangodLaw. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash MangodLaw. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode.
2: Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind.
1: This is Bob Dylan about man and God and law.
3: They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors. The circus is in town. Here comes the blind commissioner. They've Trends. One hand is tied to the tightrope walker The other is in his pants And the riot squad, they're restless They need somewhere to go As lady and I look out tonight from Desolation Road
1: Music is magic, and magic is music. And one of the tough calls that any music fan needs to make is how much to analyze the work of our favorite artists and how much to simply enjoy it. Though I had read Rolling Stone and Spin and everything written about Jim Morrison when I was a kid, it wasn't until I was in my early 30s and found Gréal Marcus's Invisible Republic that I caught the bug Of Dylan books. We'll be doing an episode on the top 10 Dylan books later in this season. For me, what started as a dribble with that first book by Griel Marcus, who is to this day my most obvious and formative influence as a writer about music, well, that drip and dribble eventually became a hailstorm of books about Dylan and just about everybody else. With the explosion of Dylan studies and Dylanologists all over Twitter, and now the blowout opening of the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I missed, it's easy to get FOMO about all that's swirling in the Dylan universe. What have I missed? Who heard what I said? Is there something in what I'm hearing or saying or thinking that's going to add something of use to this conversation? Or am I just distracting myself and the occasional other (laughs) from what this music is for? Listening. Our guest this episode is Scott Wormuth, and. If there's anyone who has plunged into the art of decoding how Dylan works and what that way of working means, it is Scott. This is how the sausage is made, the sausage of the songs, particularly in the later stages, Of Dylan's life as a composer. And if you're not one to want to see what happens when they make the sausage or what happens behind the curtain of your favorite magician musician, beware. Scott's been reshaping how we hear Dylan for well over a decade. He's a master listener and thinker who has changed the way I hear Dylan. So get ready. Here goes nothing. And speaking of nothing, nothing Dillon does is unoriginal, and that's because there is no original. Let's put these things in our pipes and smoke them, shall we? This conversation will take you for a ride. I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff, host of the podcast, Bob Dillon, about man and God and law, an author of the book about man and God in law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan. That book is available wherever fine books are sold. Cut up, copied whole cloth, plagiarized, or disappeared into something else. Yes, indeed. Welcome to episode four of season three. Bob Dylan's Memory Revisited with Scott Warmouth. But let me tell you, Scott, I I may speak for some of the universe of fans of Bob Dylan and really music in general. When I first encountered your work, I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it because despite the fact that I've done a lot of work myself on what's called the art of memory and the ways that we think of originality today, creativity today as being the new thing, in fact, for much of the human history, it's been about how we piece together pieces of puzzles in new and interesting ways. There's not too much that's actually invented.
0: You write about the notion of invention uh, and the ties to inventory, the pieces that you'd need to put that together and, that, and those ties, which I thought was a really good point in your book. Oh, thank
1: you. So, for my own edification and for those who are listening in, would you be willing to do the 101 seminar? The Scott Wormuth intro to your methodology, how you got to it, how you how you have envisioned a way of seeing and hearing Dylan's work in what I have to say, and I'll probably say this a couple of times, an incredibly important, interesting, insightful way that, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> frankly, it's it may be the most important thing that we can say about Dylan in certain ways is is in a sense what you've come up with. So help us, help us get into it. And uh, we'll see what we can do.
0: Sure. I I appreciate the kind words. Um, For me, the work that I'm doing now really mostly stemmed uh, the big spark for that was the release of love and theft in 2001, which I really became just very focused on. I, I didn't anticipate that it would do that i bought the record in a big box store uh on a whim when it came out i saw it there and i said oh a new album from bob dylan i hadn't listened to a new album from bob dylan in a long time uh and uh and i was just struck by the language and the music in that and it really brought me back into looking at his his work where I'd, i i might have pulled away by the the tail end of the 80s I, I spent a lot of time in my teens like any fan of you know american popular music rock and roll music really listening to uh a lot of his work uh, especially my, my late teens early college years just going through all of those records and um and going through the lyrics and thinking about how do you write songs like that and just the notion of that and, and being touched by those songs in the many different ways that they are? I mean, that's a really, really common experience. That's why Bob Dylan is so popular. And, you know, I, I bought the um, the copy of the lyrics and drawings book, the one that's got the orange and gray cover. It's not, sure, it came out in the sure. 80s. Not a particularly yeah. attractive cover, but it's, right. I remember just sitting there with that book in front of me going, Wow, how am I going to get into this? I and mean, there's so much there, songs I hadn't heard yet. You know, mid 80s was a kind of a rough time to be a fan of, of, of Dylan work and that there wasn't a lot of material coming out that was engaging me um empire for last came out when i was like what like about 18 uh, or so and, and I, I and i was hoping oh boy i knew album from bob dylan but it, those songs in the production styles of the 80s weren't working for me and then um uh, you know down in the groove wasn't uh, clicking for me uh and um i kind of pulled away and so once love and theft came out then I just had to do a lot of backtracking and a lot of building out for that. Um, I'm a, kind of a musicologist by instinct, uh, by nature. Um, you know huge a huge, huge music fan since I'm a little kid. Uh, I' playing guitar since I'm eight, writing music, listening to music, working as a, a disc jockey. I had my own weekly radio show in high school when I was fifteen. Uh, you know, and and just dive into deep into whatever it's going to be. And you know, I was a huge, huge Beatles fan, or the Beach Boys, or uh, big, big blues fan, rock and roll fan. You know, spent tons of time with. Oh, there's the Chess Records catalog. Here's a couple of Chuck Berry songs, and and always Bo Diddley, and there's Muddy Waters, and there's Helen Wolf, and there's Little Walter, and then you can you can spend years there. And the same with, you know, I like Elvis Presley. Some of my first records were 45s from my mom, so. You know, Hound Dog uh, and Don't Be Cruel, Blue Suede Shoes and Tutti Frutti, 45s. Like, oh, this is, has got a spark to it. I remember sitting with my sure. pile of 45s my mom gave me at seven or eight. It's like her box of 45s from when she was a teenager going, okay, here's here, this is the, fi- the pile that I'm gonna go and listen to again. Here's the Everly Brothers, here's Buddy Holly, here's Elvis, Here and you know, uh, Mr. Blue by the Fleetwoods, maybe not so much. Or here's Novelty Records, here's 16 tons. Or here, uh, and, um, and my, my dad worked in the late 60s, early 70s in a record pressing plant. And one of the job perks was you get to bring home free records. So that really was a wide range of stuff besides what they might listen to that uh, left a huge amount of music available for me to dive into having a, a, a fairly, uh, uh, you know, a, a decent sized record library. And so you one were completely of the reasons why I-
1: steeped in music. So you're, you're, so as long as you can remember, really, you've just been a music person. The way
0: yeah, oh, I, absolutely. And I've got uh, you know, and a and a and that delved into record collecting. And I, I um, mostly because I grew up in an analog world. To hear the music, you had to have a copy of it. And uh, so I've got you know, like probably four or five thousand LPs in my record library. And I worked in radio for years. I get I was music director in a bunch of different radio stations. The job perk there is you get free music, more music than you can ever possibly listen to. But here it is, and more and more streams of. Of, of music for that. So, um, you know, I was a music minor in college, I was a liberal arts major. You know, my other focuses were archaeology, uh, sociology, and psychology. So, what, you know, what are you going to like? This the work I'm doing now with looking at villains, not only the, the, the lyrics and the music, but also the text. Um, and this, because the periods of the stuff I'm really focused on that I think I find the most interesting uh, have it's really a, a kind of archaeology uh, to it, looking at the text of Chronicles, volume one, Love and Theft. And one thing that I think is really overlooked a lot is the script for Mast and Anonymous, which are all about the same time frame. And, um, and it was really quite a role for, you know, Love and Theft is just such a spectacular record. And then that's 2001, 2004, I guess, is when Chronicles comes out. And I read that and then um, and then the film came out. And, and, and I saw that in the theater in, in, up the block in my neighborhood. There's one other person in the theater when I saw and Anonymous. <laughs> and then to, to get the script for that and to start. It was probably Dylan. It was probably, well, Dylan. it was probably Dylan. Well, you know, <laughs> Albert is an interesting town. But, so with, but with Love and Theft, there's, there's so much going on in the language there. And that pieces would bubble up. And people would talk about and that musically this is coming from this place this is the roots for this component this is a this line is from f Scott fitzgerald this is uh whatever those pieces are going to be uh, one of the i think one of the bigger sparks for me besides listening to love and theft and just being totally there and, and and having to backtrack i hadn't heard uh the records that came out before that so i had to go and listen to time out of mind and then there's the entire world of of live recordings and downloading uh so much of the never ending tour recordings and, and finally where, uh, what's in Dylan's inventory, all of the folk songs that he's going to be covering and the CDs and, and releases of that just collecting him playing trad songs live and what are the ones he's picking and, 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 uh, and going through that. But there was that story about uh, confessions of a Yakuza and Dylan using lines for that. It was a, a guy named Chris Johnson. who was teaching, english as a second language in japan and just happened to pick up the book and recognize wait that line on the first page i know from that song and then went through them and and found a whole series of other ones to me that's that's you know like Willy wonka and the chocolate factory golden ticket type stuff and and how can you have to have that experience what a what experience So how can you can you replicate that experience in the lab you know the uh and, and it turns out well you can, uh, and you just have to be uh, really diligent and um, so spending the time and going through that and, and and seeing how much of love and theft is that that building of of pieces from from other sources, and how deep that goes in the lyrics, and that still pieces are coming up that hadn't been recognized uh, within the past couple of months or, or because it's just so richly interwoven. And it's just a fascinating way to work. I think it's different than what we had seen him do with the work uh, earlier, where it's much more deliberate. I, I think we can sp- trace the growth of it. Um, one reason some of the stuff I was writing about got noticed uh, when, because uh, I'd spent a lot of time with Love and Theft and going through that and piecing that together and and, and just keeping notes on that, because it was just a fascinating project. Um, and then uh, the next record modern times came out and that leaked uh, online about a week or two before it came out mm-hmm. and i was like visualizing oh well i know what love and theft has got at least parts of it and um, and here's i just remember visualizing it as a here's a field of snow that's not touched and 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 we haven't had a chance to look at this yet what are these songs were the building blocks for these songs and i started using just some some basic strategies though there's a peculiar sounding phrase Let me run that through Google and see what comes Mm up. Uh, And, uh, you know, basic detective work. You know, that's an odd sounding phrase. And when that happened, I started piecing together uh, on Modern Times. Dylan was using bits from the poetry of of Henry Timrod, uh, which I posted on expectingrain.com and the old Mm -hmm. Dylan pool saying, hey, take a look at this. There's something going on here. Here's another example. Here's another example. Here's another example. Um, which was more just like compare and contrast, take a look when I discuss what Bob Dylan's doing, because he's clearly reading this this poet, Uh, which was just more, it was just a chat room discussions, really. Um, And with that, I I was mentioning it to uh, the guy who lived across the street from me at the time. He's a uh, middle school Spanish teacher, big, big music fan. And we would talk all the time because we're out in the street. And uh, we're friends. And um, I mentioned to him, hey, you know, the new Bob Dylan record's coming out. And and take a look at one of the things I've been working on. Uh, it looks like he's using these uh, these components here. And uh, I guess his middle school teacher background, it, 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 he wrote a letter to John Farrellis at the New York Times saying, hey, Bob Dylan should give credit. Bob, he wrote this like wow. almost a little bit of a crank letter to the to the New York Times. And then the next day, there's an answering machine message from a reporter at the New York Times and uh, ca- calling me to talk about it. And then a few days later, it's on the front page of the New York Times. Yeah. Bob Dylan Rebel was the title uh, for that. <laughs> and then the day after that, I was on, they asked me to be on All Things Considered on uh, NPR, which, it, it, and I think it was just, a, 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 it caught it at the right moment. That Modern Times ended up being very successful. It was brand new. It just, it, it, and my neighbor took that action. It was just an odd set of circumstances. And and following that, within a week or two, there was a writer, a, a teacher his name is edward cook uh and he did a post saying hey not only is there stuff going on in these lyrics but take a look at chronicles and he put about four or five different examples of dylan using material from chronicles and for me that was uh an eye-opener i'd read chronicles i was certainly intrigued by chronicles but i hadn't thought about chronicles being written the same style and the same methods that we were seeing in, in love and theft and uh ed's a really bright guy edward cook he had a he's wrote a book called the uh, solving the mysteries of the the dead sea scrolls he's mm. one of the editors of dead sea scrolls a new translation uh, going through little tiny bits of text and trying to put them in context is is, is you know his profession and we spent about well, probably about two years just going back and forth trading notes going through chronicles methodically page by page to see what other components we might find and it's just such a rich book. The book is just so, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples within that. And so just like archaeology, gathering the pottery shards, gathering those those bits, gathering, building that inventory. I think of it as a, the notion of a commonplace and what does Bob mm-hmm. Dylan's commonplace look like? Can you build his inventory and figuring out like what, you know, starting off, what books is Bob Dylan reading? So you can build a bob dylan bookshelf which i have a pinterest page called exactly that it has about a hundred different titles where dylan has uh, almost certainly used material from them in a whole range of ways in songs in the movie script in and uh and chronicles and and mapping those those pieces out and then it's okay we've got all of these pottery shards do they tell you anything and and trying to keep tabs on those so and just keeping notes, like here's all of the Hemingway ones. Here's a, a document that keeps that. Here's all the ones from saxe or Armor. Here's, well, could it be this one? Well, maybe, maybe not. Well, well, then let's take a look within that text itself. A lot of it is reading slowly. So reading through a book and noticing, hey, there's, um, there's a line here. If we go two paragraphs back, that's another one that, that jumps out. And and oh, that's much more likely. Or see how he's, and then you can start to see how is he playing with the language. What is he doing with it? How is he pairing things? There's a lot of intentional pairing of couplets in in Love and Theft. There's pairings of voices to create new voices that you hear in uh, in Chronicles. So it was, really, and and you know, you can do that work for quite a long time. The the material is so dense, and that ultimately to discover that he's he's built all of these hidden subtexts uh, throughout and uh, that they cross over from work to work, and and that there's all of this other uh, uh, hidden meaning there that if you take the time and go very, very slowly and then look at the moving parts, you can start to see uh, some of those pieces there. And I, and I think I was just lucky to find some of them. And I think there's plenty plenty more there that we just haven't even noticed yet or even thought about.
1: So there's this, there's this amazing story of how even uh, any of this thinking came to be. It was just, uh lucky neighborhood uh, conversation in Albuquerque that brought up on the world this, uh, this crack that's just opened up. So Dylan's a curator then, okay? So Dylan, Dylan's sure. a collector, he's a curator. Uh, on the one hand, right? Someone could say, well, he's a genius. He has a photographic memory and he is just sitting down at his writing pad or strumming his guitar and the words are going to come out the same way that if you and I were to sit down at the piano or the guitar, or whatever our instrument of choice was, certain melodies would come out, uh, certain phrases would come out. If we had a few drinks in the bar and got up and they were playing the right 12-bar blues, you know, it'd be some combination of meet me in the morning, blue suede shoes, and whatever else happened to creep up because of what someone was wearing at the bar, right? That's just the way it goes when you've got a photographic memory in you. And you let it out on the on the one extreme, uh, if, if we can even call it an extreme, because maybe that's just the way we work. Some people have better memories than others and other people are freer than others with their memories, but whatever it is, there's something in his system and it comes out. And then on another extreme or another plane, I guess, um, you've got an artist who has said on many different occasions, whether he talked about his guitar playing or he talked about his songwriting, I can't do now what I used to be able to do subconsciously or automatically, but I've learned these new techniques, right? Almost like uh, I found another crossroads and another crossroads, you know, a legendary crossroads where I I learned a technique. I got an elixir and uh, I, I got a new code I can play. So in that sense, do you imagine Dylan... As being the luckiest genius who's just listened to all this great music, read all these great books, seen all these wonderful films, and he's just a he's just cranking out these these couplets and these phrases that 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 come out and um you know, he did happen to be reading Hemingway on uh, February thirteenth, two thousand and fifteen, and hence right, the songs come out, or is he sitting down with a sort of William Burroughs cut and paste sort of you know, um, throwing his books up in the air and saying, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put Hemingway and Blake here. I'm going to put Henry Timrod over here. This is going to be a line that Anthony Quinn said in such and such film over here. And all this together is going to be my new way of writing music. How conscious of it? How disciplined is it? And, um, and uh, <laughs> how do you imagine that room looking? You've described the, the, the yep. blanket of snow. What's Dylan's writing world look like in that? Can you can you parse it? Can you give us a, a an educated guess?
0: Sure. I, I think you you do have. I don't know that I buy the notion of him having a photographic memory. Some people do, and and they can look at a page of text and it's there. Um, I think you mentioned Hemingway, and he certainly quotes Hemingway uh, quite a bit in uh, in Chronicles Volume One. And this one portion in Chronicles, where he's, he's paraphrasing and quoting Hemingway, but he kind of leads towards how to visualize that. He, he's, he's, um, he writes, uh, I needed to learn how to telescope things, ideas, things that were too big to see all at once, like all the books in the library, everything laying around on all the tables. You might be able to put it into one paragraph or into one verse of a song if you could get it right. So I think of that notion. He's got a library. He's certainly got a huge library. The books are open on all the different tables, and he's and in the, in the point of that, he's he's actually quoting Hemingway. Hemingway doesn't say; he just says one paragraph. Dylan adds the one verse of his song. So I think of that that notion of uh, of telescoping, which is. Uh, a, a used in a couple of different ways. I worked in radio and teles- re- telescoping in radio is taking out all the bits that you don't need and just keeping the interstitials. Here's the intro to the song with the DJ saying, and here's what the DJ says outward. Here's the beginning of the commercial. You can take an hour and telescope it down into you know, a good three minutes and maybe uh, get a feel for what that sounds like. And I think there's that notion there. Th- there's still the guy that wrote all those Bob Dylan songs. And, I mean, that, that catalog, you can't deny. And to keep at it and to keep that, that balance there how do you get there and i, I think on the rough and rowdy ways there's those two songs there's mother of muses and there's my own version of you and i think mother of muses might be whatever that's going on in there his own memory how is he finding those pieces and that's you know whatever that touches him and that genius that comes out and then my own version of you is a, a, a song about Frankensteining, and, and how do you piece these things together? And that notion of, um, I think of a to be able to do that effectively to gather all those bits and put them together. Uh, the notion of the commonplace, and and, uh, and what does Bob Dylan's commonplace book look like? And there's probably a range of different answers over the decades for that. We've got his working notebooks that you can see. There's the ones they have in Tulsa that uh, from the Basement Tapes era that that have. Mm-hmm. snatches of popular songs or a grocery list or a reminder to go buy something or something he heard on the radio and and that i think that continues and writers who've worked with him larry charles mentions um the box the legendary box which is filled with scraps of paper and hotel stationery and napkins and bits of whatever so uh and and how does that work and he famously said to like it's famous if you're really obsessed with the work, to to, to Joni Mitchell, uh, the box wrote that song. And uh, I think he sloughs that off a little bit, but there's, I think that there's that mix of that. So that notion of, okay, there's the box, what's going into the box? What are the moving parts there? And, and, uh, and can you, can you find those? And there's just, once you start diving in, there's just so much there Uh, and and finding, you know, for me going through that and just being meticulous, taking notes. being willing to take notes on things that seem improbable. Um, one note, one thing it took probably about five years in the works. I had I'd noticed an odd line in a book that came up in Google, but it was in snippet view. And you can only, in snippet view in Google books, you can only see a small piece mm-hmm. of the phrase in context. And um, so you don't have the whole book. And it was one I would found that was like, oh, that's peculiar, but it's not enough to hang anything on. But I put it on a note card and put it away. And then, um, what had drawn me to it is that the guy who written the book that this turned up in happened to be named Zimmerman. I was like, oh, that's, that's a little weird. And it was, just, it was just enough for me to put on a notebook, a note, and have it there. And then uh, years later, I came back to say, oh, let me take another look at that. And, it was, and I went and found the book that it was. And I noticed the phrase that I had found was certainly there, and it did match up. And it was pretty weird, but it wasn't enough. But then there was a matching phrase on the facing page of this same book that made it there's 100 percent. there's no way these two peculiar phrases would be uh would would be that way uh it's a section in the sun pie portion of of chronicles where he's writing about uh in my mind's eye i could see blood spl- splattered and sprayed he's writing from the point of view of you know, writing about that in- interaction with uh sun pie and in, in uh in louisiana and it turned out to be from a a, a mystery novel called blood trance and and it's uh and probably the only thing that stands out about it is the guy who wrote it his name is r.d zimmerman and i looked into it to see well well who's r.d zimmerman turns out the guy's name is robert zimmerman and he happened to have the luck or fortune of being from the same generation and being named robert zimmerman and uh and i looked into it more and it turns out This bothered him so much that he changed his name to his initials, R.D. Zimmerman. And then he um, changed his name yet again when he wasn't writing mystery fiction. We he started moving to historical fiction, he became Robert Alexander. So he'd be at the front of the bookshelf as opposed to in the Z's with that. Yeah, and then he wound
1: up with the same A middle name as Allen, right? Robert Allen Zimmerman. Right. But, well,
0: he's uh, he's R.D. Zimmerman, so right, he, but he, but I, he he went to Alexander, so he exactly, got Xander, closer, yeah, he did, yeah. right? <laughs> and, and and it turns out this guy has been haunted by Bob Dylan fans for years. He used to be listed, and he lived he, he happened to live in Minnesota uh, that. for that. So he he wrote, he wrote this great uh, uh, short piece for one of the. Uh, um, minneapolis weekly an alt weekly there where they collected all just poison pen letters about minneapolis and he had his poison pen letter about drunken bob dylan fans from norway waking him up at three in the morning and thinking that and he thinks they're talking about his book and it's just another bob dylan fan and they asked him about his middle name it's d for dingwall dingwall what kind of name and he, he, and he doesn't like bob dylan and he's, he, he writes his whole piece about how he calls him the dreaded him and the other and it's almost like an Ed allen poe story uh, where he's endlessly, he goes to the bookstore in his own neighborhood where he's lived for 20 years and gives them his credit card and they make a Joan Baez joke, as opposed to recognizing that they sell his books and have the book signings with them there. So that the notion that Bob Dylan was playing with that guy uh, in a way that, I don't know, who does he expect that going to ever notice or recognize that? And the notion that it, it doesn't seem believable. Like when you say that to someone, that, doesn't, that story doesn't make sense. That story sounds fantastic, but it's far too peculiar in terms of language and then you can see it spread out throughout and then you can see dylan doing things like uh he did that interview with michael gilmore for rolling stone where he brought sonny barger's uh book uh hell's angels and because he mentions another guy named bobby zimmerman who died in a motorcycle crash and he draws that and he's making all these like things about the zimmerman so there's well there's another hidden zimmerman and he points out that this book is written by uh what does it say on the cover it's keith and kent zimmerman so he's got those, those pieces and, going and on. And he there. talks about that concept of transfiguration and that that yeah.
1: is the explainer of all explainers in terms of how not just creativity works, but all existence essentially, that nothing dies,
0: everything's connected. Um, and, and that he's playing with that and that he would be doing that and with, with the notion of what purpose is that serving there and who's the audience for that? I'm assuming if I found it, I'm part of the audience for, for that. And, uh, and I think it, it does change how you have to look at this material because it's just, it's, it, it, it's such, um, it runs so deeply through that, that stuff since I mark it around the beginning of Time Out of Mind is when I really first see him start to work in these methods much, much more elaborately than we might have seen earlier.
1: And just again on the methods, right, on the methods. Mm-hmm. So you're imagining... For whatever reason, he's attracted to a cluster of books. He's a cluster. He's attracted to the Zimmerman trilogy, right? Uh, He's attracted to, obviously, Richard Thomas has written extensively about the translations of Ovid and how Mm -hmm. Dylan is um, transposing, transfiguring, or translating from the translation of Ovid into into his lyrics. Um, And he... um, sort of hangs out with this material he plays with the material and then it becomes the material some of it makes it onto the stage and then there are subtle twists certainly musically he's he's playing a lot more than lyrically i think once he gets to the stage i think the the general body of text remains more or less the same is that right particularly on yeah, the but- on the later songs if you talk about the songs from the you know Time Out of Mind and later which does make up the bulk of
0: of his set list i think does the general body of text stay the same it changes there 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 are changes sometimes they're just i think more in the moment but there's some that are more deliberate um there is um one of the time out of mind songs in later versions he starts incorporating um uh, like some johnny and jack lyrics so there's ones where he, there's a different version of it there's uses a different version of this verse he, he played with um uh uh, what, what, there's one song that's got a whole lot of stuff uh from uh Tennessee Williams in it and and some other components and where the verses are are different uh, almost nightly and people would track them and 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 uh so there is some play with that there's some uh, with uh even with some of the uh rough and rowdy ways songs mm-hmm. he's come up with new new bits new components that are being incorporated um and even sometimes the older stuff if you go to bobdillon.com a verse may disappear from from the website so those songs i think are always in, in flux and so we've got the different versions from uh performance versus uh what's written versus what's published are going to be in the the books of lyrics uh, for that uh i think trying to piece together well what are those 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 elements you talk about uh, the art of memory in your Mm -hmm. book and how is he building a mind palace and what what are those processes like and uh, because i don't think he has a photographic memory but i think the notion that he works on memory is there i mean just to remember the songs and and that notion of the need for memory to be a troubadour who who can play hundreds of songs Mm -hmm. even if you might have some cue sheets on there he's got that and i think there's that notion that he, he 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 works on that and um so that so what is that like how, and how does that impact how is he pulling those those pieces together where does that alchemy come from that type of magic you wrote about um, the subtle difference between fakery and the art of memory uh, for that and and i was really thinking about you, that notion of you know how do you apply those pieces and and uh, people who can develop those those memory skills i worked with a woman who had just trained herself where she could we we trained together and we trained classes together and we'd have Forty people come into the classroom, and she could memorize all of their names yeah. by going down and and just do that, and something about them, and just do it seamlessly. Which is uh, uh, with practice and skills and application, you can you can do those pieces. And um, and I, I don't have that ability. I, I store information in different ways. I take notes. I I, I, I read really slowly. Mm-hmm. I, I, I take some time to to think about things. And uh, when I th- that notion of the, the fakery and the art of memory there's a, a i haven't seen anybody mention it i mentioned uh, in a piece i wrote for the new haven review that came out in 2010 that dylan mentions a book called secrets of mind power by harry lorraine and uh, he's talking about the new morning sessions and trying to figure out what bob johnston is saying to him because it's so cryptic he has no clue what what bob's on to and he he writes uh, and I would have to take one of them mind reading courses to know what Johnson meant by saying what he just said. And then he goes on uh, I'd brought a book, Secret of Mind Power by Harry Lorraine, to the studio and had it left and had left it laying on one of the couches. I thought that the book might help me to continue freeze framing my image, help me in learning how to suggest only shadows of my possible self, which is an interesting thing. So, why is he mentioning that book? And it's, it's, a, it's a more of a how to remember. Type book. Uh, Harry Lorraine is still around. He's 95 years old. Besides being, uh, that's, that's a book about being a memory expert. And he used to go on The Tonight Show and he'd memorize everybody's name in the studio. And Carson would flip out because he could do he, and he could and he'd market it. It has books and he used to have infomercials. But besides his work as a memory expert, he's also a magician. He's a noted card magician, written and performed uh, for, for decades. And that notion that it's, it's not a mind reading course, which Dylan is talking about, it's a more of a memory training course. A mind reading course would be fakery, because because it's a, how do you do that? How do you present mind mm-hmm. reading effects? So I think about that notion between magic and, and, uh, and the art of memory and the application of those mind power tricks to, to learn that. And when I took a look through Harry Lorraine's book, there's actually a section where he teaches you how to... Mem- like his strategies for memorizing names and uh, he gives a list of about a dozen different names and, and how he would remember stapleton you know you see so many staples that they weigh a ton you can right. remember stapleton sure. and, of course and, and one of the ones he gives there is happens to be zimmerman picture a man cooking or simmering in a large pot simmer man zimmerman yeah. so and now and that, that you could throw that away as just an offhand oddball coincidence and it very likely could be, but this is also the guy that brought the book with Sonny Barger and the Zimmermans uh, uh, to, to that interview and hit the other Zimmerman there. So I think that that, that, notion of, of um, magic, that is performance that that does involve some fakery versus the alchemic type of magic that you might see with Harry Smith is going to, put the songs in order on the anthology sure. of American folk music with the notion of it's going to change the world and or whatever that's going to be. That's a, that's an artistic magic for that. And too. that library
1: certainly makes it way into the Bob Dylan center, right? So the Harry Smith yeah. piece, which Dylan, you know, has protested I think to Greel Marcus's face with a tongue in cheek that, you know, everybody's making too much of this whole business about the anthology of American folk music where on the other hand, that's in the library. I mean, that's in the heart of the library. And of course, the, one of the many, for me, pun intended, I guess, uh, memorable scenes uh, from Chronicles is this incredible description of the New York Public Library right. and Dylan entering the memory palace and choosing the strangest things to explore. Essentially, he wants the microfilm. He wants the microfiche of newspapers from the Civil War era and then makes the claim that everything he ever wrote derives from that America on the cross, again, transfiguration, right? right? That yeah. it all comes from this partially invented, somewhat invented, heard someone else had done it, thought about it 45 years later, or 60 years later, who knows what, and came up with it. But it's not clear where the myth begins and the
0: joke ends right it's just not clear and i think that's what keeps it interesting uh you know that section of chronicles is fascinating and then when you dive into it and start to break it down those pieces that he's talking about finding on microfilm and a lot of the really specific facts you can track to a book called it's a textbook it's called daily life in civil war america and there's all these components there's no doubt he's he's going through that and he's using that to flesh that out so instead of actually going to the library again and digging it up if you ever did but i think that notion of reading deeply into those components another thing in chronicles it's along those lines is he's talking about those types of songs that are on the anthology of american folk music or the dis- the disaster songs, the assassination songs, um, that they're just as live to him as the current events. That it's all one plane of time uh, for that, and and the sinking of Bismarck or whatever it's going to be, it's all it's all in one one place. And it's, those Civil War stories are just as al- alive to him. So how how big do you make that that place? And he's been and it it goes all over the place. I mean, uh, where he's going to sit and go through you know, modern translation of the Canterbury Tales, or he's going through Ovid, or the first time I saw him using poetry of Juvenal, is one of the reasons I contacted Richard Thomas years ago, Mm -hmm. was uh, in an interview. He did an interview and he started writing about uh, seeing sideshows in Minnesota when he was a kid. And the characters he's using to describe the sideshow acts that he saw are directly out of a really specific translation of of Juvenal satires. And it turns out Richard Thomas knew the woman, Susanna Braun, who had done that translation. And I got in contact with her as well. And, and you know, she was like, Dylan fans, they're, you know, that. And, and then he moves to, so that's, he's doing that in an interview. Who that? Who's supposed to notice that? And, and, uh, and what are the, what's the plays that is going on there? And, and, and that, that he's got this work where he's going to do that in not only in the songs, not only in um, Chronicles, not only in the film script, but in the interviews and then moving that into the, into the paintings Uh, for for that one, I, I, in terms of what is he thinking and how does he get there? And what are the things that he's reading that, that drew me like there's a really became interested in Dylan's interest in sideshow Uh, because he has got all these different pieces of American entertainment, the notion, all the stuff about the minstrelsy and thinking about those components. I think the sideshow stuff plays into that. Then I I noticed there's a book called uh, uh, Secrets of the Sideshows by Joe mm. Nickel, page like three or four. He's com- he's bringing up Juvenile and Bread and Circuses, and uh, it's a really and he's got you know here's here's it's it's right there in the first few yeah. pages. So was he reading this book and did that notion of oh characters from 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 here are sideshow characters oh, juvenile, and let me right. do that and is he playing that and he's using this translation and then it's a couple of years later where Juvenile comes up in lyrics on. Uh, Tempest, and then later on, Rough and Rowdy Ways, where he's moved to a different translation, and um, so you've got—I think it's likely he was reading those books—and so take the time and 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 read them, and then it then you can find other parallels. And one of the things I thought was really interesting in the script for Master Anonymous is. It's written just as Chronicles is with bits and pieces from all over the place, but it's made into film dialogue, it's made into dialogue for the characters. And there's another book on Sideshow called In Search of the Monkey Girl, which is a, a it's a book of photographs. It's a photography book, but the photos have captions. And there's some essays by Spalding Gray. And there's sections of dialogue in in the film that come from Spalding Gray's essay, that come from the captions of the photos. There's stories that are rewritten. So it's How is he reframing those components and how are they building? That book itself, that he's reframing components from that book that, you know, where
1: I'm looking at you on the Zoom screen. So I Mm -hmm. saw the cover of the book. The title of the book, again, is In Search of the Monkey Girl, Photographs and Notes by Randall Levinson, Stories Mm -hmm. by Spalding Gray. And you're saying that um, you've just got uh, a sprinkling of pieces of that text, of those captions of the photos in the uh, screenplay for Mast
0: and Anonymous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and it's so specific, and there's so many of them, and how he's crafting their stories, and uh, and, and how do they show up? The Jeff Bridges character, Tom Friend, has a section that's a, it's actually a deleted scene that you can find on the the DVD where he talks about um, growing up, and it's it's all one person's story here. Or uh, there's one a line that Edmund uh, says, uh, Mickey Works character. Uh, we're not a bunch of strong men at the flea market. And it's right out of the Spalding Gray essay. Yeah. So it's seeing what, what might jump out at him. And so and then, yeah. then take that and expand it across 100 plus books. Some he goes much, much deeper into. Some wider, he's got a bunch of titles from them. Sometimes it's just one narrow piece. But it is, and, uh, and it's trying to parse that. Which ones are more likely? Which ones is, that don't quite make sense? And then and taking the time to consider them.
1: So I'm, you know, I'm sitting in my seventh grade classroom. Um, I'm 12, 13 years old, they hand us a copy of As You Like It, and half the book is footnotes, right? He, Shakespeare got this from here, he got this from helps. here, all the way through, right? my Until all the way through my doctorate, my advisor, Bert Wasotsky would say, you know, footnotes are great crutches, but it makes it really hard to dance, right? So, you know, here we are, here we are with whether it's Shakespeare or, I don't know, the annotated Dracula, Right. right? What's the difference between those examples of um, a scholar who is annotating, documenting where the references live in the work of a great artist, and why do we find this so shocking in the work of Dylan? Isn't this the way art has always been made?
0: I, I hear you. I, I, for me, that's what I think. It's the way art has always been made. You take pieces of this and that, and you stitch them together, and you, you, you see if you can come up with something new, or maybe you can't. Uh, and you've got the pieces that may be unconscious and the pieces that you you might know. Uh, sometimes it's. Uh, and then and then, what is the work that you've got? What is that inventory for that? And and how? What do you do with it? And, and uh, you know, for me, I liked love and theft a great deal before i knew any of those components were there so then it just makes it more it, it adds to the richness of of what's going on there or that uh, there's peculiar parts in chronicles that don't quite make sense and then you can see what he's laying underneath there within has to be intent because he tells you sometimes that the example i use uh, is another mickey work example where he's writing about going to see mickey work in uh, the movie homeboy when he's recording oh mercy and uh, and he says something about the mu- the film went he went to the, the moon every time he appeared on the screen and on the same page he's quoting a line from the first men in the moon from hg wells and so he's he, he, like if you notice that yes and very often he'll add a signifier for that And I don't know that, you know, with Shakespeare that he's doing that. He's he's saying, if you found this, this is exactly what I intended uh, for that. Uh, And some writers go so far down with that. In terms of an annotated book, the annotated Lolita is a fascinating book in terms of how much is going on there and what those notes are to to, uh, even start to see what he was building there. It's much more than whatever that story is. It's just the the thought process of putting those pieces together. And I see some similarities there. With the H.G. Wells, he's not only saying, did you notice this bit from The First Man on the Moon? Yes, I did that intentionally because I mentioned this other line here. But did you notice the other four H.G. Wells novels I did? Three pages back, six pages back, four pages ahead. And uh, so is it playing a game of can you recognize all the times I mentioned or or incorporate H.G. Wells into this and make it seem seamless? So he's not saying that, though
1: though he's not saying that, like when Bruce Springsteen starts his Born to Run autobiography, the first two pages is, I'm a huckster, I'm a magician, look at me, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, do you see my hands, nothing in my hands, you know, he basically takes all the air out of the the balloon by saying, I'm a huckster, I'm the guy who didn't have a driver's license when he wrote Born to Run. I'm a fake, right? And I'm a hack is what Springsteen's saying. And, you know, I have to say, you know, if you saw his Super Bowl commercial a few years ago, he sure did look like a hack. The wink and a nod that you're describing with H.D. Wells or any of these other references, um, are you suggesting that part of this is a game to be caught at uh, or not caught at, to be discovered, that, that, that the code is left there as part of the thrill of the composition process to leave
0: these crumbs for somebody to find? I, I think there is. And, and uh, to make a parallel to what you talked about with the beginning of the Springsteen book, I'd, I'd argue that Dylan does do that on the first page of Chronicles volume one. He lets you know that he's not a reliable narrator and that he's a, a bit of a fabulous by using material from other sources. Uh, the one that's on uh, the first paragraphs of, uh, Chronicles, he starts to incorporate a couple of peculiar bits from Charles Mingus's beneath the underdog, um, where he's uh, talking about a pocket sized recording studio and leather upholstered booth. And, uh, he runs into Jack Dempsey who says, you look too light for a heavyweight. And that portion is all out of a, a, pas- a passage in, in beneath the underdog where, um, where Mingus's, uh, describing a car that it looks too light to it's too light for a heavyweight like mingus he's talking about a car and the but those other pieces of uh it's a pocket-sized air conditioner in there and and he's in it's all right there and and is dylan aware of that book well he reads the first pieces of it on an episode of theme time radio hour It begins with in other words i am three and that notion that mingus's book is is filled with invention it's a it's a wonderfully uh written book and it's it's edited in a way i think there should be a a, a longer version coming out because he what ended up being published versus how many hundreds of pages he wrote is, is mm-hmm. a huge disparity and a lot of what's in there is, is it's fascinating reading uh and, and i think he's setting that up my book is going to be like mingus's book if you could pick this up and he continues that out uh throughout the book uh and uh and and does that again and again and again where it comes off as genuine, I am talking to you about what I am thinking about when there's other things going on uh, beneath. Uh, and there's and he does it again and again and again and again uh, with and sometimes it's just wordplay, some it's gamesmanship. I think there's some of that there. I uh, you know who can tell how much he thought people would start to piece those together. I, I think certainly with Love and Theft, the title of it is right there. Right. And then, then to notice what those components are uh, and, uh, and that it's from such a wide range of places uh, for that. And, and, uh, and then how much is still going on within that? And, and does he change his methods uh, along the way? But I think Chronicles was certainly written along those lines where he had to be thinking about, you know, all the books on all the tables and what are the pieces that he's going to use and how is he going to make that come across as seamless, I mean, that and um, and have that book be so well received, with really little awareness of how much was going on. If you go read the original New York Times review of uh, of Chronicles Volume One, it mentions one of the bits from Hemingway, uh, but it didn't notice that there were dozens of others, and that he's building uh, uh, other worlds and labyrinths within that. Uh, so I think just. You know, trying to figure out what those components are, gathering all of those, and then breaking it into a thousand pieces, and and then seeing you know how do those those tie together? And sometimes there's things going on where there's a big loud voice in a paragraph that you can spot. It's it's a famous voice, but it's covering a smaller voice that is mm. hidden within the same paragraph. I think it's like a magician's trick: the like the big move covers the little move, right. where he's doing some of those those components. So the the just trying to get into the mindset of how are you writing this? And then and just going about it backwards. Let's go parse this phrase by phrase uh, for the whole book and see how much can be there. I I put Chronicles down for a while and I picked it up again last year and went through it and found whole strings of things that I hadn't seen before and um, taking the time to consider them. And and that the same piece is used in a song uh, on Love and Theft, then it turns up used in a different way in Chronicles volume one or stuff that's in Chronicles. that's also used in the and anonymous script. And, and how are you playing with that language? Having voices speak to each other or, or marrying them. I really like what he plays with the, the notion of all the wolves and dogs and wolf dogs in Jack London's short stories mm-hmm. and novels and describes those traits to the people in his book, uh, to, to Bob Johnston, to, to Fred Neal, to, um, uh, Van Ronk, where they're all uh, to um, ease, well, he's, he's mix and matching and putting those, those pieces together, where they're all you know, a version of a dog or a wolf dog uh, from Jack London. And, that, and just the, the notion of that, that kind of play, I think there's a, a lightness to that. That's, that's certainly uh, g- great fun and, and the spirit of adventure that's, that's built into that. that um, and it seems certainly implausible and improbable, but there's just so many pieces of evidence that it's hard to accept any other. I mean, the notion that some of it is happenstance, sure. I put together a list of lines, bits and phrases from Jack London that he likely used. It's 12 pages long. Might there be one or two or four or five that you might argue, that could be just coincidence. There's only so many letters in the English alphabet. I can hear that, but that argument falls flat after, well, here's dozens of them, and here's how he's tying them together, and here's what might be... A, um, a hidden meaning behind that, something else that he's talking about that he didn't feel comfortable, perhaps, talking about on the surface, but he's much more comfortable talking about um, it via this method.
1: So let me throw out an idea that just occurred to me while while you were talking, as I was using the pieces of the puzzle, the fragments that you uh, that you were the 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 breadcrumbs that you were leaving intentionally or unintentionally. Right. So I mm. always. I, one of the, one of the things might be obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me until I wrote my book was, uh, that for me, Dylan's ultimate message is one of empathy. The, the, the question, how does it feel is to me, the question of the age. And I think we are rapidly moving further and further from being able to ask as societies, how does it feel? And I think that's where we're really entering into a period, the dark age, right? Mm-hmm. If we are unable to ask one another, how it feels, um, but what I, so that's that's why, you know, as Springsteen said, you know, Dylan's the brother you never had. I mean, I never felt like Dylan was a brother type. He would not be a very good older brother, you know. He'd be the rascal. Younger brother was always, you know, getting you in trouble maybe. Uh, but, but this deep, deep, uh, this ability to um, draw out in ways that feel strikingly familiar um, the actual feeling that I didn't even know I was having right and and that just thick um uh emotive poetic ability to reflect to people deep emotions and and in a way that's so human and so lasting there's that piece and then there's Dylan the incredible technician right same album all these People that you mentioned, I know them, they are quite lame. I had to rearrange right. their faces and give them all another name. Right now, it not feel too good. Don't send me the letters. No, not unless they're written to Desolation Row. Now, the emotion is still there. And we know from the art of memory that emotion was an important part of the art of memory. One of the landscapes where you would place your, your memory cues was in your um, childhood home or in whatever place really resonated for you. So Desolation Row isn't just some random street corner. It's the St. James Hotel, right? right? It is a place where you can actually envelop yourself in your memory of it and put your whole self into it. But the technique, right? So on the one hand, there's Dylan, whose ability as an artist is to make you feel something. And then there's Dylan as the artist who has this, strange combination of gifts where he is building these unusual um, structures of words and melody and now much more as we see, right? Images, right? That are um, technically complex and nuanced and clever and playful. Um, the, The poles between the emotional and the technical, right? The, right. um, the, the feel, I guess, the, 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 the rational and the irrational, perhaps you might even be able to say. Where do you, um, as a listener, um, can you do both at once, right? Can you, can you be tracking the ways that these texts or melodies came together at the same time as feeling them When you listen to Murder Most Foul, right, maybe not a great example, you know, can you be there with the song when you're listening to um, to the music? Can you be there emotionally and intellectually at the same time? Or have you been gone so deep that you can only hear how it's made?
0: You know, the notion of of empathy, I think, is an important one. Uh, And. That notion of having that emotional connection that that work has there, and and the, whatever the methods that he's doing to get that there it carries over. Uh, I think there's a, and th- thinking of empathy, he had one interview with a he uh, he just jokingly said that like all of his songs trail off with good luck, I hope you make it, yeah you know that notion <laughs> that there's that piece and it and it can and uh, well that's you know if you're looking for that notion of something that can touch you on that level and make you feel emotions you know that's why you listen to music uh and uh, certainly why i listen to music and, and the other stuff that notion of being able to compartmentalize it you know i listened to both sides of the blind willie McTell seven inch that came out last year about an hour ago and uh and they're different moods on the a side and the b side They're different versions and uh and and can that still trigger those 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 pieces Yes. And can I, I can listen to something like a song that's really dense in terms of other material and other things going on to it. Multiple threads through it is like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Can I mm-hmm. put that on? And, and, uh, and do I have a mind map that triggers and goes ding, 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 ding. Like I know what all those sources are. Um, and some ways I've conditioned myself to be able to hear those, those pieces. Um, there's, a uh, a couple of uh, like YouTube videos I put together, where I contrast and compare. I, there's one I did with um, bits from New Lost City Ramblers and Mike Seeger recordings and Love and Theft songs, mm-hmm. and um, so so that's that's telescope down. It's just those bits, but I hear all of those songs. So I'm you know so sometimes so you and to expand what my breath is to know that um, you know that he's uh, he's combined a, a, a line from Bald. And headed an end of a broom, like a folk song with, a, I believe I'll dust my broom. So, like, uh, where he's, and I know he was listening to, you know, uh, Mike Seeger singing, you know, boys keep away from the girls, I say, and give them lots of room for because then they will bang you till you're dead with a bald at an end of a broom. He's like, he's thinking of that song and he's playing with those pieces. So sometimes he can, sometimes it's gonna be really obvious. You're gonna recognize the line, you know, the cuckoo is a pretty bird. She warbles as she flies. If you, and listen to the anthology of American folk music. You, you know those. Some of those are gimmies, and, and I, I've just kind of expanded my range of what those pieces are uh, for that. So I'll, I can still I can do both. I can compartmentalize and just listen to music because I like listening to music, okay. um, and, and then I can I've got the pieces where I'm gonna break down and hear it those those ways. Like some of those telescope videos I did. There's another one that's all about songs he used from a box set that's on the bear family label that's all early country songs upbeat country songs from nashville in the late 40s and early 50s and he used a whole bunch of them Uh, and um, so now i can hear those bits of songs and i so i've got all these other things that spring off from it so it and i think part of it is people have such strong emotional reactions to those pieces it makes some people very hesitant to look at the things i'm writing some of them don't want to know i don't need to know what the moving parts are i need to have this experience and this is the relationship right. i have with this music and uh that's fine they can do whatever they they want but i it, 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 but i didn't make this stuff up it's not invention on my part i try to be um fairly prudent and uh and and to think about how are these things put together and um uh, and and just i think because building that, you know, what does Bob Dylan's commonplace look like? Then you can get into the idea, well, how did he start to craft these things? And and, and how is he thinking through those? And just give us another way to look at what his process is. And I love the notion of process. I I, I watch I mean, I, I want to see what does it look like when Andy Warhol and george Malonga are pulling the silk screen down to make those maryland prints and I want to see well, how do they actually do that? What does it look like? When they're making okay. the Brillo boxes, what does those silk screens look like? I want to see all the parts. Like I the Warhol has that cow wallpaper, right? And it comes from a book on like animal husbandry and cows. And I, I went and bought a copy of the book because I was like, well, what does the rest of the book look like? <laughs> I'm, I'm that kind of person. Uh, and and I, I think there's that, 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 those components there. But one of the most interesting things that Dylan does in Chronicles, that I think makes me think of, of your book, is when he writes about Mike Seeger. He um, is, is just was such a brilliant musician, musicologist. He, he speaks of him in the highest terms. The most praise anyone gets, besides maybe Woody Guthrie, is is for Mike Seeger in Chronicles. And he uses it. Uh, he incorporates into that all of these components that came out of a book uh, called Touchstones, uh, a book of daily meditations for men. It's a book from Hazelden. It's a book from. Uh, substance abuse recovery. is really It's a daily book. Here is uh, your thought for the day. Here's your quote for the day. Here's a, a, a prayer perhaps for the day. And he's gone through and taken the components of that and structured it around uh, what he's writing about Mike Seeger, where he talks about he never thought of musical performances could be a spiritual experience until he saw Mike Seeger play in the loft. And, and he'd have to go back and do all this work to get anywhere near where Mike is going to be. And he's using this, this language from uh, from Touchstones. And, um, and, I, and I found that probably 10 years ago. And, uh, and there's sections in there. Actually, I actually have it on my, my Kindle. I can, and I bookmarked it. So I've got the physical copy. Like, how would you go about doing this? You find one. And then I'll go read the book. Okay, well, there's another one. And there's another one. And there's another line. And, and you get another notion for how does Bob Dylan's eye scan a page. Sometimes he'll go across a page uh so the line starts here and it goes across there uh and sometimes it's the next day um and then that he's using not only this book but other books like this these books of like daily meditations which are different than a hemingway short story like and and how do you categorize those books uh this book i think is interesting because one of the days what uh, the quotes is the bob dylan quote He's he not busy being born is busy dying it's so but that notion that they're is Bob Dylan reading books that mention Bob Dylan? Well, that's a whole section of books. There's books right. that happen to mention him that he uses uh, uh, that, that turn up in, in his work. So is he? you know, how do you, if you are Bob Dylan and you're reading Touchstones for whatever reason, and there's a quote from yourself, how do you, you know, what, how does that work? And, and he, he talks about the notion of music in there. Now let me bring up my, my bookmarks here. And I'll, I'll the, there's uh, one passage in here. Let me find my notes. Let me see if I can find the piece here. It uses it a bunch of different times, but it's the November 1st entry where it begins with, we may have spiritual experiences in our daily lives that we don't think, about, uh, think of as spiritual. For many of us, music lifts us from the practical and mundane circumstances of our lives in our, into communion with the universe. And, and he's using that piece about, um, you know, he talks about music washing away washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life and, I, and that you wouldn't know that unless you took the time to parse it and figure out that he's using this book not only in chronicles but it turns up as dialogue in uh for some of the characters in mast and anonymous and i really you, you wrote about some of the things that uh, dylan talks about where um where he's finding spirituality in the music. He talks, I think it's in one of the Robert Hilburn interviews. He right, talks about that where, where yeah. right is that that's what it is. He's thinking about those Stanley Brothers songs, Let me die on a peaceful rest on a peaceful mountain. Those pieces where he's finding spirituality in the music. And I think from about the same time he's using a book like this to to reflect on where like who who is um uh, doing you know who's making Musical experiences that I, I think of as spiritual or Mike Seeger was and how do you it's like as Mike being like the type of person in terms of what is he doing how is he devoting his life how is mm. he studying uh, what is the things he's you know wh- what does that work about and and to see that tie through I, I wrote and, and you, you wrote about it in your book I'm, uh, a long piece about Tweedledee and Tweedledum has got it functions in one way as an homage to New Lost City Ramblers, and I think right. the title of Modern Times, which is a New Lost City Ramblers record that he quotes from numerous times on Love and Theft. There's these threads of what are the things that are important to him, and that notion of spirituality through the music, and, and, and why would you listen to music? And uh, and I think he touches on that using using this method, where he's talking about it out front, say with Robert Hilburn. And then he, he's continuing that in the work in using this type of method.
1: So have you, have you, have you, I'm just, I'm scanning my mind, you know, Elvis Costello, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, right? Who are, who are some of the truly master songwriters of our, of our time? Have you, have you brought the method to any of them? Have you, have you tested the method on any of them?
0: You know, I, well, What's one of the criticisms criticism that I've heard? You could do this with any book and come up with some another range of, uh, and it's all poppycock uh, for that. Uh, I, it, the one I tried was one of Patti Smith's books, just to see.
2: Okay. You know, and, I,
0: and, 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 uh, and nothing really turned up there. But I thought, well, what the heck? I'm reading the book anyway. Let's see if there's anyone's. And she just it, isn't writing like that. Um, I, I think there, uh, it, it, you do see other, uh, ways that people write like that an example that i talked about with uh, david kinney uh who wrote the book the dylanologist adventures yeah sure. um and that he wrote about there was um was a punk rock band called um the cramps who i really really like and i used to go see all the time and and their their catalog is all constructed this way it's just in those circles yeah, this is part of a Link Ray song, and this is part of a, a Chess record song, and this is a lyric from here, and this is a bit of dialogue from film, and it's but but no one ever seems to get upset uh, for that, and they're they're doing, uh, you know, I, I found one piece where they're incorporated a line from a book on astral projection, and and how to force your spirit out of your body, and 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 it, but they've got it in a in a context of a song where there is hidden Duchamp references, and and all these obscure records and i spent a lot of time diving into to that and so in terms of a parallel that i think of that's one that i really really like i think they get dismissed as kitsch a lot but their music is really uh dense in in terms of material and and written in similar ways here's a guitar riff here here's a lyrical idea from, from someplace else um and i think they have some they overlap with Dylan a bit. They both work with Jim Dickinson. Jim Dickinson plays on uh, "Time Out of Mind," and sure, he produced sure. and plays piano in one of them. There's a great version of uh, "Redheaded Woman" with Jim Dickinson playing and singing, and the Cramps backing him mm. up. So, I, I think <laughs> they're, uh, you know, they've got a lot of the same things that I like. They they're, they all love Sun Records, you know, all of that early. Uh, you know, for me, my entry points were all through rock and roll. So I, you know, I like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Carl Perkins and you know, and and, and Elvis and and how are those and those songs are all roots of rock and roll. Is all strange and odd and peculiar and weird stories. Uh, those origin stories are all strange. Uh, Nick Tosches is a writer who wrote uh-huh. um, "Unsung Heroes of Rock and Roll" and another book called "Country," that are great filled filled with profiles and, and uh, explorations into these types of worlds he's got a long long piece on uh, the song blackjack davy and country that is uh, which still in his cover but there's all these other versions and he talks to uh, one of the sun artists who recorded it And he's got three different versions of how he came to record those songs and what are those origin stories and and how do you dive into that so i think i don't know that any of like, I don't know if you see Leonard Cohen or Joni Mitchell or Patti Smith or Bruce Springsteen writing in these these methods. Uh, one that I did find that I thought was really interesting was um, Ben Harper uh-huh. uh, has got uh, a song called Why Must You Always Dress in Black, where he is, I think, consciously trying to do a Dylan by using material from Dylan's own book, by using chronicles. And the line that he happens to pick um uh, he picks two and, and one uh in particular is um about high-heeled shoes that could pierce your heart and um which dylan writes about at the tail end of um one of the chapters where he spots uh, like a sex worker walking uh, like aimlessly uh, as he's working on uh, the origins. to dark eyes come out of this story? Mm-hmm. And he uses that line: "She had like high heel shoes that could pierce your heart." And it turns out that was something Smokey Robinson said in an interview that is in a book on uh soul music by Jerry Hershey. And and in his telling, in Smokey Robinson's telling, he's literally going to be hit by a shoe that's going to pierce his heart because they're throwing things at the stage. So. So that uh, Ben Harper takes two lines. One happened to be from Hemingway and the other happened to be from Smokey Robinson. I think, and he didn't know that, I don't think. I think he was saying, hey, this is how Bob Dylan's writing songs. Let me see if I can write a song Bob Dylan style, or at least part of it, and incorporate those bits. Now, like these phrases from Chronicles are pretty cool. Let me Let me do that. And maybe not realizing that the pieces he picked were from Hemingway and, uh, or happened to be from a Smoky Robinson interview. So there, there, th- that one really drew me because it's it just, uh, is was he trying to write in that strategy and, and how do you apply those strategies? How do you take those lessons and make them into music or art? That's going to touch people. I have a, I have a sort of a, a final, uh, reflective
1: question for you, which is going to call upon, uh, one of at least one of your three courses of study the sociology uh portion Mm -hmm. if you can if you can crank that up did want to share though um that i just finished reading the uh magisterial and almost banned uh biography of philip roth Mm -hmm. um and uh, i just finished it yesterday and i and i think that um two things or three one uh there's a great line from philip roth when dylan won the nobel prize and and he said something to the effect of you know who's next peter paul and mary uh that just a little zinger there the second that um you're um citing dylan saying that you know sort of all of his songs end with the phrase well good luck i really think that's rothian also you know there's something about roth's humor and um darkness but a colloquial darkness that really resonates so I'm I'm actually going to do an episode of, in this season about Roth and Dylan maybe two just because I see them as kind of like you know Dylan and, and Cohen Cohen who was obviously older than Dylan Roth who was older older than Dylan but the thing that I I'm hearing as you describe Dylan you know I'm picturing Philip Roth and his home in Warren Connecticut surrounded by books and in in the most disciplined life that he lived right reading every day reading 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 and then at the end when he stopped writing he reread everything he reread his own books backwards right from most recent to the to the earliest and he reread all of his dostoevsky and his Flaubert. he he reread everything and i'm just imagining these you know um kids right obviously philip roth is probably was probably born in uh I don't know, mid thirties, late thirties, Dylan a little later, but these, these kids sort of golden age America, quote unquote readers, readers. I just think it's incredible the way you're describing Dylan as a reader. I mean, almost want to say the most reassuring thing of everything you've said, right. Is that this person reads and reads and reads. I mean, the more people read, the better it gets, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And this, 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 this library, the commonplace as you described it, Mm -hmm. the Dillon Library, and now with Dylan actually opening up the Dylan Library, I just hope we don't miss the message here of what it, it may all be about in terms of trying to put this stuff in the wrong box, right? Versus the the Dylan box, which has in it an element of magic, randomness. There's no high or low culture in there. It's just, it's the stuff he's attracted to that someone handed to him, right? Um, so, so after I've, you know, I, I can't control myself from waxing, you know, arse poetic here because, uh, because you've put so much fascinating content out. Um, where can people find all this, by the way? Where can people find your stuff before I share
0: a final question well, well there's a, a couple of places um my blog has got some of the longer essays that i've written which is called goon talk G-O-O-N-T-L-T-A-L-K, which is Carney slang for Carney slang is why i chose that we'll put that uh, which, in the notes yeah and just search for my name uh scott Wymouth, and you'll you'll find my my blog and it's got a, a bunch of pieces there um i've created a series of pinterest albums that i think are useful there's one called a tempest commonplace just mm-hmm. moving parts that that show up in tempest and some other p- pieces there there's the bob dylan bookshelf that i mentioned where you can just find those titles and start to to, to dive in the, the notion of, of dylan as reader i think that's a, a great place to start because it's such a breadth of, of material it's, it's and you can find something that's going to be a good fit for you there um i i a lot of this work and writing I did maybe about ten years ago. There's a whole new audience and whole new ways of communicating. So I spend a lot of time on on Twitter breaking pieces down. So how can you break stuff down into bite-sized that somebody might be able to grab onto? Uh, and I'm some on Twitter uh, is another place that I that I've been putting pieces and my YouTube channel where I've got a whole series of Dylan related videos where I take some pieces that you can expand out for a whole lot into just a couple of minutes, or telescope down. So you can uh, at least say, oh, there's something going on there. And, or it's a, a quick way to do contrast, compare, contrast, compare, contrast, compare. So you can certainly get there that way. Uh, for me, the notion of Dylan as reader, I think is huge. I'm glad that that resonates with you. For me, having a hundred different books that I know that Bob Dylan most likely looked at and finding the ones that he really spent a lot of time with, uh, you can gain a perspective of how his eye scans a page. Uh, If you know you've got the same edition, hey, this one caught his eye. Maybe because it's the bottom of the page, it's the very first line of the page, or did he pick this line from this Sax Rohmer novel because it's page one, and maybe someone easily would find (laughs) it versus page the one that's page two hundred, or or just how his eyes goes across a page? When you find those examples, it's fascinating in terms of what is he picking up on, what jumps out at him, what phrases go, uh, which writers does he like the most? So you know, reading through the short stories of Ernest Hemingway, and then recognizing and piecing together all the pieces that jumped out of bob dylan and you know it's 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 a a, a course in american literature by a really interesting guy to lead you through it and uh, so he's put all of that out there and i think you can spend the time to figure out how does bob dylan read what's on his bookshelf what's in his record collection
1: it's all sacred text right it's all sacred text that he's that he's bringing in it doesn't matter where it comes from he's canonizing it all
0: so the the commonplace and the the inventory on one side, and then that how is he making it into magic and making it just into things that that yeah. touch us and so many people in so many you know profound ways. That wow. why is this material so popular and still resonate and touch all of those places? And how do you get there? I mean, there's and still that's, and that's it,
1: my question. That's my sociologist's yeah. question, right? Yeah. So if you take if you can if you can if you can pull yourself up on the pulleys out of the
3: mm-hmm.
1: out of the. Out of the hole that he's in, right? Yeah. <laughs> and come back up, and maybe go up. I don't know. We can climb up into Leonard Cohen's Tower of Song and take a look down at the landscape here, and ask ourselves, from a sociological perspective or musicology perspective, you know, uh, Paul Simon's got his his legal pad uh, per song, right? He's he's banging it out line after line, meticulously, like a lawyer writing a brief. You know, Elvis Costello. God knows. I mean, just so wicked smart and clever and, and, you know, such pristine, uh, the ability just to shine these songs, but nobody does this kind of writing quite like Dylan. It has a, a social, a cultural resonance. At the end of the day, he is this guy walking through the garage sale of culture and picking out the pieces that shine for him or look a little odd or something that he thinks maybe I can do something with this with it you know what is the social message what is the message the creative message that you know you glean you've spent a long rich period of time digging into this stuff how should we understand the world how can we understand creativity how can we understand purpose? Because this is a guy who's been talking about these things for 60 years. What do you glean from his process as a message to the listener, the detective, right? The scholar, the, the curious person, right? Who is just attracted to this stuff and wants to know how it works and finds out this is how it works. What's it mean?
0: You, you know that what does it mean to be you know i think about the, f- the frailty of the human condition you know the, the amount of time you have on this earth and what do you do with what you've got there uh and how do you make that that resonate uh i, I think that's the, the the big piece there all all of those big questions of of of, of life are there like a, that he chose to devote his time to not only writing this way but then to bring it out and to tour and to to, to share that so um uh, that notion of someone who works so hard to be able to do this, that this just doesn't come as uh, just brilliantly flows out of them uh, with some people it does. I th- I don't know that George Jones ever thought this deeply about any of these components, but he can still touch you in those ways. And, uh, and, and that music, George Jones's music can certainly hit you that way, but I don't know if he's was much of a reader. I don't know if he, out those, of those deeper pieces there? And I think there's, this piece is going on there. I think it serves as a, an inspiration, just the notion of uh, the breadth of human experience that y- you can touch through his music that reaches out and, 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 and grabs so many people uh, and, and figuring out the ways that, that that works. And he certainly has those, those strategies and how do they, they function. Part of it is, hey, this touches me and this, this makes me feel these pieces. And how does it get there? uh and, and that step in between it gives you something to to do um uh, john cohen i got a chance to talk to uh about some of the things i'd spotted dylan doing regarding uh him specifically in dylan's work and he asked me well why, why do you do this why are you doing this and, and I, one of the things i said was well it puts me in a position to read things i wouldn't have thought to read to listen to things i wouldn't have thought to listen to so how do i uh you know what else are you going to do? that path along the way is that's it's not a final end desk journey. it's what's happening on the journey. Who are you meeting along the way? What are the things you're doing? How are you using your time? How are you broadening what you think about? How are you challenging yourself regarding those components There's things I've found in Dylan's work that I haven't written about that that challenge me, so i've got to pause and go slow and consider and and it gives you a chance to be contemplative on that and it's it's all there and there's just so much of it that well seems to go on and on and on the notion that this is endless you can listen to this and you can dive into this and you can build your life through this and it's it's enriching and uh, how do you what are it's a way to have a rich life is through reading the interaction with the people you meet along the way and uh and I think that's one of the the big components there is that here's a path. How do you make this work for decades? And yeah. and and, and it, that it's okay to fail, and it's okay to make mistakes, and it's okay to have records from the '80s that don't resonate with Scott Worman and Albert Riccioli, like, Who cares? He, he was still he's already moved on right. to something else until Jeff and, Rosen uh, re-
1: recurates them, and then suddenly yeah. it becomes the rich era of Dylan's uh,
0: renaissance, right? Uh, but that, that yeah that that notion that you can it's it's to keep trying let's try it in five different keys let's try it rewriting it a ton of different yeah. ways what are you seeing in Tulsa or are the piles of drafts like how do you get there and how do you work to get there and how do you make that happen and the the, the work for that and for me that's and when you find something that's maybe that isn't readily obvious that's built into that work uh, in the, some of the ways I've been digging up. It's, it's a window into that process and, and, uh, and, and, and an enriching one. You know,
1: the hardest chapter for me to write in my book was the one about teachers because I felt that Dylan had, had a litany of teachers that he cites. He talks about his teachers. And, yeah. uh, and yet um, he doesn't present himself as a teacher. You know, he's, he's the master who refuses to have a disciple. And the joke of the New Dylan and the strangeness of someone who is so steeped in tradition, so many different kinds of traditions, and refuses to participate in the, um, in the basic structure of tradition, which is student and teacher. But Listening to you and learning from you, um, I actually think maybe um, I should have spoken to you when I was writing that chapter because what I've understood is that maybe this is the teacher um, who teaches us how to read, who teaches us how to be creative by doing. He says, come to my shop and watch me make this thing and just sit with me and pay attention if you want. Don't pay attention. You want to you wanna sing like me. You want to think like me. You want to be like me. You want to write like me. Just watch. Just listen. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I mean, here and there, I'll drop a few hints, right? I might turn this way or the other. I might tell you that you should actually pay attention to the left hand as opposed to the right hand. But basically, you're describing how he has essentially created a kind of secret curriculum that if people are paying attention to it, they actually, uh, they actually found a teacher. They actually made a teacher.
0: And I think we'll see more of that when the new book, or Philosophy: oh, Modern yeah. Song, right, is, is is on the horizon. And the notion of teachers that, well, Mike Seeger as teacher, John Cohen as teacher, as you know, as role models that he holds up, and and he's he's different than them. He certainly thinks about their process and and what they do, the the preservation of song, the the going out in the field and uh, finding. You know, uh, Roscoe Holcomb or Doc Boggs yeah. are still around and you can talk to them and, and, what, and those are people that he would see. But I think there's, that he's got those aspects that he thinks of, like those uh, people who are working in that tradition. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing some of this is that debt he recognizes to what those people are doing are, comes out in, in this work. Uh, and they're all teachers. I, I attended an old time string band workshop with John Cohen at the Santa Fe Folk Festival like 15 years ago in a tent in a muddy field where he's got his banjo out. And he's there doing that to teach. And I'm able to come back to him a decade later and say, hey, you know what? I was looking at this other guy, you know that guy you took photos of in 1962, et cetera? Yeah. And look what he's doing, this, 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 this. And to be able to share some of those lessons back, applying some of those notions that they're doing, the notions of musicology, of song collecting, of thinking through those components of uh, and, and where are they coming from. so I, And I think we'll see, see more of that. I, I can't wait to see what philosophy of modern song brings. It's going to, you know, is it going to be done the same way as some of these works that I've been diving into? Is it going to be something totally different? And uh, what I like is uh, people picking up on and finding things that I wouldn't necessarily have noticed. and uh, But noticing, well, since this is the method we know that he's using, what are some of the yeah. other things we can find? Um, like, for instance, Laura Tenshirt found... Uh, in my own version of you, which is a Frankenstein song in ways, he's not quoting Frankenstein. He's quoting uh, the Cliffs Notes for Frankenstein, <laughs> which is wild. And I, I wouldn't have thought to look for that. And uh, and, and but it's right there. And and, and uh, about uh, looking for the necessary body parts and uh, and the whole lines. And so it's the notion wow. that he's using Cliffs Notes in his Nobel Prize lecture as well. So there's a oh, level. I <laughs> or, or is, is there a student component? And is he making it more obvious uh, with that? Being, hey, these Cliffs notes, need to get, this is a way to yeah. study literature. Or is it becoming trolling after enough time? It's hard to tell. But I think there's that notion of, of uh, a teacher on his own terms, and you've got to bring your own stuff to the plate to be able to interact with it. To, to get the most out of it. And, and I mean, you can just listen to those songs and have that in relationship with it and have all your own string of memories that it triggers and all your own visuals, because sure. it's open for that. And, and that's certainly valid and, and, and uh, a way to do that. And I, I listen to it that way too, but there's, there's a whole lot of other things going on there too. And, it, and it's deep and it's rich. And I think it's just starting to be tapped. I think there's much, much more going on than some of the things I've noticed.
1: Well, I want to thank you for sharing your immensely learned, curious, inspiring uh, vision for Dylan um, with us. I will encouraging uh, friends and colleagues to find your many um, insights online. And um, just thank you for, for the work, right? You talk about Dylan and his work, let's thank you for your work. This is really a special way to appreciate Dylan. It's a special way to appreciate culture. And, um, you know, it's a special way to be a co traveler in some way with a guy who um, claims to make the path very, very hard to follow. But actually, just by listening and paying attention, it's actually really easy to feel a part of something magnificent. And uh, I think that's one of the doors that you've opened for a lot of us. Um, it's, a, it's a special way to be a part of the, of the Dylan universe that doesn't require the usual um, fanatical fandom. It's just about listening, which is, is so great. And it's active listening, too. So you've taught us a lot of lessons. And um, I appreciate your work and your time. And, uh, and thank you so much, Scott.
0: My pleasure. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. This has been episode four of season three of Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. Thank you to Scott Wormuth for blowing our minds. I invite you to visit mangodlaw.com for more about this podcast, upcoming events, and even an excerpt from the book about man and God and law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan, available now. And speaking of books, we will be dedicating the next two episodes of this podcast to comparing and contrasting the work of two almost contemporaries who lived and loved in their books, in their writing, as writers, Bob Dylan, of course, and the great American novelist Philip Roth. Look for upcoming episodes wherever you are listening now, and be sure to subscribe and rate the show when you do It really helps this podcast grow. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Visit PantheonPodcast.com for a cornucopia of wonderful podcasts for music lovers. I am your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Thanks for coming,
3: and see you soon. Honey, ram a ding dong forever. And when I say, you know I mean it, from the bottom of my boogity-boogity-boogity-shoe.